Hello, and welcome to Sober Mesa podcast. My name is Owen Gobar, and this week we are talking Spanish literature. Before we get started, I just wanted to say thank you to all our listeners who have donated to the podcast over the last few weeks. Your financial help is really appreciated. And we are asking other regular listeners if they could make a small contribution to help make the podcast sustainable going forward. We have just come up against certain production costs, and it'd be great if we can make sure that the the podcast is sustainable and we are able to grow coming into the new year. You will find our link to our Buy Me A Coffee page in the details of this episode. So just please click on that. And if you can, make a small donation. Thank you. Okay, my guest today is Becker Seguin. Becker is assistant professor at John Hopkins University. He's a regular contributor to The Nation magazine. And his new book, the op-ed novel, is new this month from Harvard University Press. The op-ed novel deals with post-Franco literature and the central role that the newspaper El País has played in developing and promoting the whole generation of Spanish novelists. Okay, I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, Becker. Welcome to Sober Mesa podcast. Hi, Owen. Thanks so much for having me. No, it's great. It's great to finally get the opportunity to speak. We've I've been reading your work for for a number of years, and we've sort of had a bit of contact online, but we've never actually had the opportunity to speak before. So it's it's great to finally talk. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I'm a, I'm an avid listener of of the Sober Mesa podcast for a number of years now. As I was telling you before, I really enjoyed your book. I mean, I, I read it quite quickly over Christmas. It's it's really well written, rigorous, substantive, but also engaging. And on a, on I think on a topic of, of wider general interest, it's not it, it's an academic book, but it's not. I'd say it's not designed solely for an academic audience. Is that fair to say? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I tried to write the book, um, couching it in kind of lots of anecdotes and 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 narrative because I think that that's the best way to kind of explain this history of of let's say post nineteen seventy five literary intellectuals um, in Spain whose whose opinions are very colorful and whose yeah. uh, who love whose lives are, are somewhat interesting. Exactly. No, you do. You lay out some of the very interesting debates. I hadn't, you know, they were a bit before my time in Spain, so I was very interested in uh, in reading us. I mean, your book your book is called the Op-ed Novel, and I guess at the center of this, five probably five of the most renowned and, and most famous uh, novelists in the last 30 years in Spain. And as you say in the book, the one thing you, they all have in common, you know, they're quite di- distinct writers, is is the fact that they were all columnists for El País. And you say, you start your book, you say, once you notice it, it's hard to ignore. Novelists are everywhere in the opinion pages of El País, Spain's paper of record. Of the 75 re- regular opinion writers listed by the newspaper, one third are professional novelists. And as you say, this is a much higher percentage than, you know, New York Times, Le Monde, or probably The Guardian. Can you talk, I mean, why, well, yeah, why Why is this the case? And maybe just talk about El País as Spain's newspaper of records since the transition, you know, is set up in the 70s, you know, as as Spain transitioned from from the Francoist years into 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 the parliamentary uh, monarchy, etc. I mean, what has been the role of El País and why? Yeah, why why have novelists played such an important role in in uh, in this newspaper? So El País is, has a very very curious role, and Spanish history is is very peculiar compared to other, let's say, post fascist or post dictatorial, post authoritarian societies. El País was founded. 
1976, I believe in, in May of 1976, just a few months after the yeah. death of Franco, right? Franco died in November, so it was just a few months later. But El País had kind of really started go uh, started to get going back in the er- earlier in the 1970s, I think in around 1970-71. Um, and so there's this kind of um, Grupo Motor, right? A, a, a group um, of people from, honestly, from across the ideological spectrum, primarily among the, let's say, reformist Francoists, the people who were at the same time did not want did not want an authoritarian state any longer. And so this happened in in the 19, in the, let's say, early 1970s, you have a number of people who kind of come together and are stri- starting to think about, right, how uh, the Spanish press is going to deal with this end stage, what they believe would be, believed would be the end stage of Franco. So in 19, in, in Franco and Frank, Francoism, some kind of, um, let's say, I don't know if they thought about it as a transition, but at least a kind of uh, a different stage of, of, of Francoism than than we had in the 1940s and 50s. And so the important kind of catalyst for El País is a law that is passed in 1966 called the Ley Fraga. And this was basically the, the press law in Spain that was that reform re- reformulated what censorship was going to be. And censorship before this law was essentially... Uh, this is censorship of print media, was essentially a kind of absolute censorship where you would have, there was a censorship office and you would submit materials uh, and these materials would have to be approved um, by the censors and then you could publish uh, those materials. In 1966, that changed. And with the Ley Fraga, named after Manuel Fraga Iribarne, the the Minister of Information um, at the time, essentially the, the regime did a kind of, I call it in the book, a kind of bait and switch where they gave, they said, we're going to still have these censorship laws, but at the same time, we're not going to, we're not, we just don't have the capacity to overlook this, the entirety of the censorship apparatus. And so it's going to be incumbent on you, the publishers, to, to censor yourselves, right? Or else you can, you're, you will, you may be penalized with uh, monetary or criminal uh, prosecution. And so at that point, I think a lot of let's say, uh, journalists in Spain or people interested in the media in Spain were, were kind of assuming that there would be some kind of transitionary phase out of uh, the autarky and the very kind of closed censorship apparatus of, of earlier. And so you have a bunch of kind of bourgeois, uh, uh, let's say, empresarios, uh, business people, politicians, etc., who get together and, and are kind of preparing for this. And this is the kind of instigator for El País, one of the, one of the people behind El País, um, is uh, Jose Ortega Spotorno, who is the the son of Jose Ortega y Gasset, and oh, really? the other okay. person is Jesus. yes, this and the other person is Jesus uh, del Polanco, who is the founder of Santillana. Who any person who has been to Spain and has a child in Spain knows knows exactly what Santillana is, right? It's a major kind of uh, publisher of textbooks and of uh, children's books, not only in Spain but then it branched out very quickly to to Latin America. And so you have these kind of figures being the founders of of El País. And what they did is they brought in um they brought in people who simultaneously, let's say, were were part of this kind of moderate wing of the right within, let's say, late Francoism. And that's how you get someone like Jesus uh, sorry, uh, Juan Luis Terberiano, who is oh, yeah, the, the, the first El Pais. Yeah. 
Exactly. Upon its founding, he would later go on to be the the, the CEO of Prisa, the parent company of El País. And so what's important about this is that you have all of these into these kind of, let's say, conservative, but that but for the time, let's say, liberal uh, bourgeois figures in this media apparatus or in this kind of the beginning of this media apparatus. And what they're thinking is, or at least I mean, from from Thibrian's writings, is they're thinking of how to, let's say, reestablish some kind of form of liberalism and, and ideas of liberal balance, right, that had really come, let's say, from, I'd say, especially from from the United States, right, that came from the New York Times, that came from the Washington Post, that came from media um, in the United States. Um, and so, so anyways, so El País is founded in 1976. And the reason why novelists kind of take this prominent role is because novelists, let's say, are seen as these, I would say, intermediate political figures. They're not seen as, let's say, occupying one side of the political spectrum or another. You have writers like Rafael Alberti, who are clearly on the left. You have other writers, more conservative novelists um, on the right. But through a, through a newspaper, you can kind of balance these two ideas and you can offer both of those ideas up for public consumption. And I think Theorian, at least on the op-ed page, really took to heart to the, this idea of having kind of intellectual um, battles that could, let's say, cause some kind of kind of broader commotion, right? Um, and that could serve the paper well because people would come and would buy the paper just to see these kind of political and intellectual battles play themselves play themselves out. Um, and so, what's what's curious about El País is that it is founded in 1976. There's one other newspaper, one other important newspaper, Diario de Ecuador, that's also founded in 1976. And these two newspapers are really the kind of, I would say, the, the anchor of many Spaniards' media consumption vis-a-vis, uh, at least print media consumption, vis-a-vis the transition to, the, to democracy, right? These are the newspapers that really kind of galvanize and really hold the attention of, um, of, of, of the reading public in Spain. And the distinction between El País and El Diario de Ecuador, I would say, is that El País because of its closeness, it's it, it did not start out, let's say, as a left-wing paper. I think it started out much more to the center than people often assume. You have in the night you, you read the articles from 1976 and 77, and you have clear, like, very extreme right-wing figures writing op-eds um, in El País at this time. But very quickly, by the by the late late 70s and early 1980s, it's clear that at El País. Um, has a very develops a very close connection to the PSOE, to the Partido Socialista Obrero Español, and to many of its figures within it, and and because of that, you have this kind of I I don't know I would say a symbiosis between the editorial staff or the higher ups at El País and the higher ups uh, of the Socialist Party, and Severian even talks about this in his memoirs, right? He says. Um, that there were meetings that he was privy to, he and other members of uh, of the editorial staff of El País that were they were privy to in, inside the PSOE and inside the PSOE, especially once the PSOE comes to government in 1982, that they were privy to that just no one else was really <laughs> privy to. And so I think that, I mean, there there's this wonderful uh, article from a number of years ago in The Nation um, uh, by a journalist whose name escapes me at, at the moment, um, but anyways, and the, he quotes someone as saying essentially that uh, oftentimes in the 1980s, 
the PSOE, the cupula, the, the, the head of the PSOE, the head people of the, at the PSOE looked to the editorials of El País in order to find some of their policies. And whether that's true or not, I think is kind of beside the point. The fact that someone can state that and not be laughed out of the room is kind of gives you enough evidence to say that that Baiz had a some kind of strong influence um, within the PSOE, um, and that I think distinguished distinguished it from from many other newspapers at the time. And I mean, I think you do say that in your book. That I mean, obviously there are politicians going and writing op-eds for El Baiz and you know pushing policy lines, but it, you also then have that other loop of yeah policy ideas coming from from the opinion pages in El País toward yeah go, uh, influencing influencing the socialists. Your book, I guess, centers on a generation of uh, of novelists who I guess came of age in the nineties, not in the or came to literary fame in the nineties anyway, late eighties into the nineties and onwards. And you describe them, I guess, up until that point, El País had published already famous novelists, you know, pe- people who were established, who were uh, literary authorities, pub- already public intellectuals. But that from the 90s onwards, basically you, you describe it, the paper became really like a, a youth academy, similar to a youth academy for a soccer team. It, it sort of, it produced a generation of public intellectuals who were also novelists. So, some of them already novelists, others were first opinion writers, columnists, and then went on to write, um, to write novels later, I guess, well, some one thought, Montoro would be one example of that, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I guess that there are very few, I guess there are probably very few examples of like the main newspaper in the country having this type of this type of, of influence. You no, know? I mean for a whole a whole generation of novelists. Your your basic thesis in your book is I mean that the their role as opinion writers then had a huge impact on other literary output as novels. And that's both in content and then even in terms of some of the, the forms they employ as novelists. Can you talk a little bit about that idea? Yes. So, so let me just go, let me go back and just finish the, the, the thought about how the op-ed page kind of, the El Baiz op-ed page came, came yeah. in because well, that's it's true as well, actually. Yeah. It's, 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 it's important, it's important to, I guess the, the, one of the main points I want to make in the book, or at least in that, that chapter that gives the kind of historical background of El Baiz and, and these literary figures is that even someone like Cebrian, who was the, the editor of El Baiz, but also had a very strong hand in, in controlling and, 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 let's say, organizing, editing the op-ed page. Even someone like him had a very strong literary bent compared to, let's say, your, new, your journalists in, in the United States, your journalists in the UK, your German, journalists in Germany, or, or in France. Um, and I mean, Severian even went on to write, I think, one or two novels that were oh himself. Oh, okay, really? Okay, <laughs> not 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 very good. But the point is, he had a very kind of literary uh, orientation, and so the kinds of people that he brought in, even to the editorial side, uh, Javier Pradera, etc., had a had a very kind of literary orientation from the beginning. And Javier Pradera, who was one of the first, I believe, the first editor, or one of the first editors of the op-ed page of El País. Um. He, uh, oh, let's say, uh, opened a space, and I would say an unusually large space for novelists in particular, but literary intellectuals in general, but novelists in particular, to begin writing for El País. And so, as you mentioned, right, the, some of the first novelists who write, wrote for El País were not Spanish novelists, but were Latin American novelists, right? You have Gabriel García Márquez, you have uh, Guillermo Cabrera Infante, you have other novelists of, of, of stature, especially from the Latin American boom period, 
that begin reigning from El País in the 1970s. And so you have this literary space kind of open up, I think primarily, excuse me, I think primarily because of the disposition of of the editors toward toward literature in a way that maybe didn't happen in the United States because of the prior kind of, let's say, professionalization of journalism that happened in the 19 states in the United States from the 1920s onwards. And so because you, from, so again, from the very beginning, I mean, there are studies of El Baiz from the, from the late 1970s where you have just, I mean, an inordinate amount, like almost 20% of the op-ed columnists in a given month are literary writers, poets, especially novelists, but literary writers in general. And so I think that lots of the people that I study in the book, Javier Marias, Antonio Munoz Molina, right? They look at El País during the 1980s and, and say, well, I mean, literature is, is invited in here. And so there's no division really between, let's say, being a literary writer and being an intellectual, right? In fact, the two can kind of go hand in hand in a way that I think in the rest of Europe, um, literature and, and, and literary writing is much more kind of professionalized in a, in a, in a, different, in a different way. Um, that leaves them to be much more separate from from journalism, and so anyway, so so these writers look in the 1980s at the opinion pages of El País and say to themselves probably that 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 this is kind of this is an interesting outlet that is available to us in a way that is just not um, in other countries, um, and so and so these 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 writers kind of fill what in a sense they fill a, they fill a particular vacuum right because they the 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 kind of writing that was being done in newspapers before the 19 let's say the mid 1970s was uh sometimes literary but it was certainly so controlled that there was not a development of a kind of writing talent on behalf of journalists there were excellent journalists who were also excellent writers um and literary authors like Miguel Delibes but they were few and far between. And so I think that this generation kind of saw an opening, right? Saw an opening there, saw an opening also for political reasons, right? Many of these writers, uh, Marias Munoz Molina, et cetera, were of course people from the left, right? Or who self-identified with the left. Yeah. Um, and primarily the the authors who wrote for journal or who, who had kind of, let's say, literary credentials and wrote for newspapers during the Franco era were... Certainly, maybe not extreme right wing, but we're certainly further more to the right than any of these authors uh, believe themselves to be. And so I think they saw this space kind of opening up on 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 multiple fronts. Okay, yeah, no, that makes that makes that makes sense. The first the first the first novelist you deal with is Munoz uh, Molina, and I guess he he is is he the first the first one who who who's brought into El País he, uh, in in nineteen ninety. As you're saying, he's, he's a very literary figure. You mentioned, I think it's it's obvious when you read read his columns. You know, he will he will quote you know ten, twelve novelists, intellectuals in one column, etc. That is, yeah, it, it, as you said, quite distinct maybe from from uh, Anglo-American sort of approach to uh, opinion journalism. Yeah, I think that because of the there was an earlier generation. Let me let me be clear. There was an earlier generation before the one that I study of writers in El País, right? You mentioned one of them, Rosa Montero, who was an editor um, of El País. She was an editor of the of the Weekend Supplement for a year or two. She uh, um, came up as a reporter uh, in El País. You have someone like Maruja Torres. You also have other people like Manuel Vázquez Montalban, right, mm -hmm. who are also these, these kind of became these very kind of celebrated journalists. 
who also turned into very celebrated novelists. They were simultaneously, they simultaneously became um, writers uh, and journalists after having begun their uh, career or ostensibly begun their career as as journalists. And so I think that um, someone like Munoz Molina, he had, well, all of these writers to, to a certain extent, but Munoz Molina had a, a long run writing columns before El País, uh, for for other newspapers, and he began as a journalist. I mean, he got his his licenciatura, or he studied for for a little bit uh, in university. Studied journalism for a little bit in u- university, and he his columns, at least at the beginning, I think this changed once he made it to El País. But his columns were really about kind of instructing uh, Spaniards about all of these wild kind of uh, literary references um, that they had access that they now had access to that they previously. Did not, and so I think he had a kind of very pedagogical approach. I think, to a certain extent, they all, they all kind of did. Um, yeah. And Marias, right? Marias began as a novelist, obviously, um, but he also very quickly in the 1980s turned to column writing, and his column writing was a very different, a very much, I would say, more kind of directly political form um, of column writing. But at the same time, you have other literary authors, um, someone like Almudena Grandes, not only her, but also someone like. Um, Juan José Millas, right, who still writes for El País, yeah. who have a very kind of literary style and who entered column writing primarily through that literary style. And op-ed pages in Spain, not only at El País, but also at Diario 16 and other, other newspapers across the country, country La Vanguardia, they ha- they, their op-ed pages were not as, let's say, over-determined as, as let's say, the typical op-ed page of, of, the, of a U.K., newspaper or of an American newspaper where you have a very kind of specific form of an op-ed that is just kind of reproduced with different content, um, almost ad nauseum. In in Spain, and I would say in the Spanish-speaking world more generally, including Latin America, you have space in newspapers for for very different forms of writing, more, much more literary forms of writing, not purely argumentative, but also kind of aesthetic uh, literary writing of a, that places a a premium on on aesthetics. Uh, I also mentioned in in the book that there is this longer history, right? The the history of 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 literary writers writing newspapers in Spain, of course, dates to the 19th century with Mariano José de Larra, and the beginning of of romanticism and romantic literature uh, in newspapers and costumbrismo, beginning in the pages of newspapers as essentially short stories published in newspapers. Um, but not published in in book form or not published in collections, but published in columns. And so this tradition kind of carries us all the way to to the 20th century, where you have lots of experimentation with form and opinion writing form inside newspapers. You have someone in Catalonia like Eugenio de Ors, who experimented with what he called glosas that were these very short form uh, articles that you still find evidence of. I mean, maybe not to the extent that he he sometimes had essentially aphorisms that he published um, in newspapers as his had as his quote unquote column. But you have evidence of that today, even in Spanish newspapers, that where you have this kind of flexibility with news with uh, opinion columns as a form that you just don't find in the United States. I was reading El País the other day. I think a column by Aramburu that was essentially, I mean, a paragraph long and maybe a hundred. I don't know if it was maybe 150 words long, maybe 200 words, and that was it. And you would never find something, or you would rarely find something to that extent or that short in in an American or a UK um, newspaper. And I think this flexibility 
is also another feature that writers like Antonio Munoz Molina um, and Javier Marias saw early on in in the Spanish newspaper sphere. And obviously, this was a generation. You're saying this is sort of maybe the second generation of novelist intellectuals or column, novelist column writers that that came through in that place. And this is a generation that came through in the '90s. And if there is, I mean, I guess we were saying this a bit beforehand. And with Anna Brandes stands out a bit in terms of her clear left wing commitments. You know, her 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 willingness to infuse both her fiction and, I guess, well, particular fiction with 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 clear sort of commitment, you know, engaged literature as such, as opposed to, I guess, the others, I guess you would say they are the generation of the long 90s in Spain, though, of, of third way, you know, the sort of third way socialist hegemony in Spain. For me, one of the most interesting is, is Javier Cercas, who, whose work is obviously political. He, his, his novels deal with, with, with the transition, with the 81 coup, etc. But at the same time, he is also someone, I guess, who's very at home in terms of guess what's the end of ideology it's for him it's a moment you know the 90s is is the end of ideology you know the end of history as such nearly as well no i mean how how do you how do you view that generation i guess in those in in political terms no because you have what what stands out is the fact that they they all deal with political themes they all deal with the question of spain's past it's you know it's transition to democracy it's you know it's how, how to deal with the historical memory movements how to you know it's it's a generation that, at one at the same time, wants to say we're we're nearly at the end of ideology, or while at the same time obsessing over Spain's past. Absolutely, I think they do obsess over Spain's past, and perhaps that's one of the reasons why very few of them, despite let's say all of them, all of them being translated and having their works being translated into English, very few of them have made the kind of impact on the, let's say, broader world of letters that one would assume just looking at, at their stature within Spain. And I think their stature within Spain precisely has to do with their focus on on Spain in, in not only their column writing, but also their novelistic writing. And so what I think that these, these authors, when they came, um, let's say they came of age in the 1990s um, as column, columnists and as, as novelists, as let's say literary intellectuals um, in general, I think they saw novels as a kind of, I mean, I argue in the book that they saw novels as a kind of extension of their opinion work. Um, and I mean this not in a kind of crude sense, right? It's not like they they just took, let's say, opinion columns or took, I don't know, uh, uh, forms of opinion writing and just plopped them into novels. They they did this in a very kind of experimental way. I mean, you mentioned Javier Cercas. His book, Soldados de Salamina, is perhaps, I mean... I don't. Maybe this is maybe this is uh, risking uh, too much, but at least in formal terms, one of the most experimental novels of I would say the 21st century in in Spain. I mean, in that novel, he has a let's say a nonfiction one. I would say a non a nonfiction book, a short nonfiction book plopped yeah. in the middle of that novel. He reproduces in that novel verbatim, quote unquote verbatim. Uh, op-ed columns, at least one op-ed column. And of course, the novel is couched in this new genre. I mean, people call it a genre. I'll call it a genre. Even though sometimes I waffle between calling it a literary style and genre, I don't... I, I, I think that the debate between literary style and genre is a bit over overdetermined, and I don't really have... I, I use genre in a sense as a, as a kind of... as shorthand so that people understand kind of what I'm trying to talk about. 
rather than get into particular debates about genre theory. But he, Javier Cercas, he is one of the, let's say, most famous exponents in Spain of autofiction. Autofiction is a form of, of, let's say, life writing um, in fiction that comes out of France in the 1970s and especially in the 1980s, where the author on the cover of the novel is the same person as the protagonist in the novel, who is the same person as the narrator in the novel. In other words, they have the same uh, name. They often have the same same kind of characteristics of their personality um, and and have similar features. So autofiction, Javier Cercas takes autofiction and essentially blends it with um, journalism and with newspaper writing in a way that just did not happen in other parts of the world. In France, where autofiction was kind of uh, let's say popularized and perhaps even founded, right? Autofiction was a self-reflexive act, right? It was yeah. it was it was about interiority of of the person, right? So it was about exploring your own thoughts, uh, yes, in mostly non-fictional narrative, but also kind of fictionalizing it where convenient. But for Thetikas, it was in fact the opposite. He used autofiction to get almost outside of himself and toward uh, narrating what a journalist does, right? Supposedly does. I mean. Thedekas was a university professor, right? He wrote journalism yeah. on the side. He wasn't a writer. I actually had, I had, I had, until I read your book, I had realized that, that part was a true, or like just fictionalized, I guess is the right words. Exactly. And so what's interesting, what's interesting to me about the way that these novelists, let's say, blend their work as opinion columnists with their work as, as, as novelists is that they often, let's say, Use these genres to 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 blend, let's say, fiction and nonfiction more generally, right? All of these genres, autofiction, it's very clear, right? You have, let's say, Javier Cercas is the author of the book, Soldados de Salamina. He's also the protagonist in the book, who is named Javier Cercas. What is the relationship between the two? We will never know, right? We can kind of suss it out, sort of, but we're not. We're supposed to create a kind of brick wall between the author and the protagonist and autofiction kind of destroys that that brick wall that we're supposed to create. And the same happens with with these other genres that I talk about, right? The novel of ideas in Almudena Grandes, right? She has this wonderful book called El Corazón Helado, the mm. I think it's translated as A Frozen Heart. Um and in that book, the novel of ideas it doesn't it doesn't blend nonfiction and fiction in the same way that autofiction does, but it does it in a different way. It does it through the world of ideas. It says well, here are ideas, here are political ideas that are clearly, let's say, symbiotic with those of Almudena Grandes, the columnist. Yeah. And so how do we deal with these very explicit political ideas? As you said, right, she's an avowed uh, leftist. She voted for the Partido Comunista, uh, Partido Comunista for, for, for a number of years. Um, how are these ideas... How do we deal with the, let's say, these ideas that are clearly Almudena Grandes is in the context of a very lengthy uh, work of of historical fiction? One would say, are these ideas? Can these ideas? Can we just kind of suspend our judgment and interpret these ideas within the context of the novel? The novel wants you to be able to do that, but at the same time, the reference, the clear kind of echoes between them, these ideas in her column writing, um, make that dis- or make blur that ability or, or kind of break down that ability to do so, to separate the two so so clearly. I mean, uh, El Corazón Helado is, is, a, is essentially a, a, a his, work of historical fiction where you have a, a woman, a young young woman, 
uh, in her 30s, I believe, who, uh, uh, sorry, a young man uh, who meets a woman in, their, in, in her 30s, I believe, and they ex essentially explore the pasts of their two different uh, families. One of the families was the family that was, a let's say, a right-leaning family that expropriated the other family. Right, or that took advantage of the other family, yeah. which went, which is a left-leaning family, went to, into exile into France, right? And so you have this kind of simultaneous exploration of their own pasts at a moment in Spanish history when Spanish, uh, sorry, Spanish, uh, uh, let's say, middle-aged men and women were asking their parents, right, what had happened during the transition to democracy. It was published at around the time of the historical memory law, the first historical memory law, right? And so clearly, Almudena Grandes is writing this novel. There, there, there's no coincidence, right, between the timing of this novel, the th issues that it explores, the columns that she begins to write for El País. This is also around the time when Almudena Grandes, uh, let's say, continues writing her, her weekly column in El País Semanal, but transitions, in a sense, to the, the, the op-ed page and begins writing, I believe, on Tuesdays for the op-ed page, which is a kind of, let's say, a different form of column writing, right? And the the yeah. the kind of column writing column writing that she begins in two thousand seven is much more explicitly political, right? It's it's much more explicitly argumentative in a way that her previous column writing was much more literary, is much much more essayistic. It was let's say uh, light on the politics, despite the fact that people knew that that she was uh, kind of a supporter of of, of left wing parties. I guess it that's it that's a good example. Yeah, I guess where. It's it's very hard, I guess, to separate the two. You know, the 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 op eds and the novels are sort of interventions in public debates as well. I mean, and you you talk about how the two sort of at, at times, you know, the I think one one of the examples you give is is the novel Patria, which has been you know a lot of people would have read I think most popular Spanish novels in the last few years, and you trace how basically it started as as an op ed, you know, op ed argument moves into novel form, etc. You talk a little bit about that. Yeah, the case of Patria is very curious, and I think it's not uh, unique either. I mean, I think we can also see this in in Cercas, where yes. Cercas, especially, I mean, one of the novels that I don't talk about from Cercas is I don't talk about his um, oh gosh, the the novel about the fabulist El Impostor. El Impostor, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And so in El Impostor, his novel from I believe it was twenty fourteen, and in El Monarca de las Sombras. His novel from 2017, yeah. which explores yeah. the, his, fam, his, his own uncle, family yeah. history. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. His uncle, who was an, an avowed uh, Francoist and was seen to be or assumed to have been a kind of not only just a Francoist, as, as many people were in the day, but in fact an ideologue um, and very committed to the ideas of, of Francoism in an active sense. Um, and so each of these novels in Cercas, but also in, in Aramburu, essentially begin with an op-ed. And they begin with an op-ed. Uh, in Cercas's case, these op-eds, I, I believe both of them were published in El País before he actually wrote the novels okay. that they came out of. And in Patria's case, in the case of Aramburu and Patria, it was a novel that clearly, or, sorry, it was an op-ed that was clearly written, let's say, well before the gestation of the novel, but but was perhaps the impetus for it, right? So Aramburu in 2011 writes this op-ed in El País, about this, the essentially the the ceasefire and also the complete, or the the let's say, uh, beginning of the complete dissolution of of ETA, and he talks about in in literary terms, but also in argumentative terms about what a future peace between ETA or what a future peace in the Basque society 
could look like. And what's striking to me about reading that op-ed is that, of course, the, the, the ending of that op-ed is the exact same ending that you have a number of years later with the novel where you say, where he says essentially the only way that these, these two sides in the op-ed, he says that the only way that these two sides, the Abarchale left and let's say the victims of, of ETA terrorism, the only way that these two sides can come together is through a kind of embrace. And of course, that's the famous scene, not only in the novel, but in the subsequent HBO series, right, yeah. of, of the famous embrace. And so it seems like that embrace is precisely what structured um, his entire thinking about about it and his, I would say he essentially kind of translates this, uh, the ideas from this this op-ed that he wrote in 2011 into the 2016 novel that is that is Patria, right? In the 2011 op-ed, he very much talks about he very much talks about the kind of two sides of the conflict, right? You have one side that are the victims, you have the other sides that are the perpetrators. In the op-ed, he spends more times more time obviously with with the victims, um, but in the novel, he attempts to balance this out, right? He attempts to almost one could say correct for the op-ed and say, well, okay, maybe people thought that the that my thinking on, on ETA or think that my thinking on ETA so far is very kind of uneven and that I have not taken to heart the point of view of the Abertchale left. And so in the novel, what he tries to do is he says, I'm going to be very schematic and I'm actually going to literally spend the exact same amount of time with both of these these sides, right? For those who don't know, Patria is a novel about two families, two families in the Basque country. Uh, one family is the family of a man who is a small business owner of a tire shop, a mechanic, who is murdered by an ETA cell. And the other family is the family of a, a young man who is believed to have been part of that ETA cell that then murders, murders the, the man. Um, from the other family, the the small business owner, and so the, the he spends equal time with with each of these families in order, I think, to kind of prove to the world or prove to Spaniards, uh, especially Spaniards who have been, let's say, following his his uh, intellectual uh, or following his political thinking on the Basque country. He wrote a previous short story collection that was also about uh, Eta. He wants to prove to people that he actually he actually does understand both sides and that he can novelize both sides. In a sense, it's as you say, right? The novel it comes out of this op-ed, but it's also a reaction to the reaction that people might have had to this op-ed, right? Especially those you... left. The Aramburu, I think, in the mid 1980s, uh, left left the Basque country uh, and has lived in Germany. Has lived in has lived in Hanover for for a number of years, uh, or I, I think, yeah, since the nineteen since the nineteen eighties, um, and so yeah, he is he had a very very interesting debate with Ramon Saiz Arbitoria, um, a number of years ago, and I think that that debate uh, really brings out a lot of, uh, let's say, um, or, or it crystallizes maybe his perspective on the Basque country as someone who is Basque, but who let's say has not lived um the the most recent uh a wave uh, uh of basque basque history since the 1990s or, 90, or early 2000s and one of those things is that or one of the discrepancies between them is that ramon saizarvitoria is an author who is much more interested in let's say everyday life in a way that is not 
quite as stylized as as Aramburu. Aramburu is much more interested in, let's say, using his characters, using his his let's say uh, fictional arrangement um, in the novel in order to to let's say present characters as um, either the best or the worst versions of themselves, and not very comfortable with that in-between ambiguity of people who, let's say, have moral failings, but are not, let's say, morally destitute, right? Um, it's only, I think, would you say it's only, not only didactic, or it's just, you know, I mean, I think you do talk about it in the introduction, that maybe one of the issues around, maybe, when you have novelists taking on this role as public intellectuals, is that it becomes, some of their work then potentially can become schematic, that it's, fiction in the service of of trying to push certain ideas as opposed to an exploration. I mean, I, part of part of what they see or part of their motivation maybe for writing novels then become, you know, is interventions in in public public discourse. Does this there is a, a potential then to become schematic and too argumentative? Yeah, absolutely. I think that I think that these novels maybe or these novelists, maybe that's not the the reason why they began let's say writing yeah. novels yeah. Early on, earlier on in their career. Um, but I think that that is that has become the reason why they wrote novels subsequently. I mean, you can see- Or, or at least what they're writing what they are writing. Like, you know, exactly. E- exactly. Yeah. You can see that clearly with someone with someone like Almudena Grandes, right? Her last series of novels, which was this, I think it was, what was it? Seven part novel yeah. series, right? Exploring the the history of the civil war and especially the early Franco period. I mean, clearly that, I mean, that was a, that was a political project almost more than it was a novelistic project. Yes, yeah. obviously it was an echo to Galdós. It was an echo to the novelas ejemplares. Obviously that's all true. And Almunera Grandes, I at least think that she's, she's a wonderful, she's a wonderful writer. I mean, people read her books are, they sell very well. They're very popular yeah. despite being literary fiction. They're very popular because they're, they're very easy to read. Right. And they're very pleasurable to read. But at the same time, she I don't think I think it would have been I don't think that she would have come up with this novelistic project. Right. To to tell the story or tell a number of stories during the autarkic period of the of the Franco regime. I don't think she would have come up with this project had she not had an op-ed column since 2007 in El País where she got to kind of essay out this her understanding, her own understanding of, of history and how history worked right each of these novelists has written i would say their grand a grand kind of historical uh novel in a sense right with muñoz molina right his novel about the civil war from 2007 you have yeah. javier marias his three-part novel about the civil war right cercas is constantly writing about these these kind of large or at least more recently these large works of of, of let's say intellectual novelistic history telling the history through novels. Um, and I, I think that the it's difficult to separate out this work from from their op-ed work because it is precisely, as you mentioned right there, attempt to intervene in public debates through other means. And so one of the things that people might ask is like, well, why would novelists want to intervene in public debates through their novels? Like, what does a novel do that an op-ed doesn't do? And I would say there, there, there are at least three things that I think a novel does that an op-ed doesn't do. A novel has still to this day, and especially for these authors, this might sound counterintuitive, but a novel has a broader reach than an op-ed. 
it has a broader reach because a novel, for a number of reasons, but novels still circulate, and especially at the level where, again, we're not talking about, let's say, well-known writers. We're talking about the most well-known yeah. writers, right? Novelists who sell, who, whose book, just by virtue of existing as a book, will sell over, I don't know, 20, 30, 40,000 copies, right? You, will, you also talk about... You also talk about that is sort of a positive dynamic in the sense that yeah. they it, many of them maybe got greater prominence initially by being an opinion writer. They that you know it it, be, it becomes this sort of you know self reinforcing dynamic. It, well, it, it can start either from either direction, I presume. Yeah, absolutely. It can it can start either from either direction. I mean, with Munoz Molina, you have it starting from journalism, who then a person who's a journalist who then transitions into a novelist, or with Javier Marias, you have a novelist who then trans into a, transitions into a journalist. And I guess the thing is that this this dynamic only happens for a select number of people because you you really do have to be, let's say, you have to have, um, you have to be very well-known and well-respected in both fields, right? You just can't have, I mean, I, sort of, I would say someone like Aramburu has become uh, an op-ed writer, more recently, like he hasn't always been a very, I mean, he's been an interesting op-ed writer, but certainly not an op-ed writer at the level of someone like Marias or Munoz Molina. Um, but he has kind of come into that. But most of these other writers, um, let's say, developed this in a sense, if not from the beginning, subsequently developed their careers simultaneously. And I think that there, there was lots of kind of um, mutual benefit to being both an op-ed writer and a novelist, and especially at this at this kind of level, I think they reinforce e e uh, one another. Um, but anyways, so so going back to the question of why why a novel? So one is circulation. Just novels, I think, circulate much more. Even though a newspaper is bought, I mean, we can we can look at the number, the publication numbers of El País, and they're very uh, still even to this day, very 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 high. Um, but think about how many people are going to read one random op-ed in that in that newspaper. I mean, yes, the op opinion page is perhaps one of the most read sections of the paper, but I'm not confident that uh, an op a, one particular opinion article will necessarily get more reads than book sales for these kinds of writers. I mean, I, I would say they're comparable. But the second important point, which reinforces the first, is the longevity, right? A novel just has much more staying power, much longer shelf life than an op-ed, which you read one day and you forget a few hours later or the next day, right? So one, the first is circulation. The second is longevity. And the third is that in a novel, you can speculate more. You have more ability to speculate uh, with your ideas, you have more ability to speculate with your political positions. You have more ability to speculate using these characters, using this narrative format, than you do uh, in an op-ed. An op-ed provides essentially no room or very little room for, for speculation in this kind of broad sense. I'm not talking about, let's say, speculative claims about what is the government going to do next. Rather, I'm talking about speculation about one's own opinions and one's own yeah. um, political positions, right? These novels provide a lot of flexibility in that regard, and so one doesn't necessarily need to come down very hard on one side or the other. One doesn't necessarily need to make, let's say, a locked and sealed argument about one topic or another. Rather, you can provide kind of gestures. You can provide, um, again, essay is, the, is I think the best word uh, in the technical sense is the best word for, for this, right? People are essaying 
their ideas and their political opinions in a way that that is much more, let's say, uh, um, yeah, it's just it, it, it's much more. Co there's a the the novel is a much more kind of copious mechanism for for doing that than than the op-ed page where you have to have a very clear vision. You have to have a very clear kind of argument, even if it's in a short form and even if it's a form uh, of literary writing in newspapers, which lots of these uh, writers do. I mean, in that, in that sense, maybe going back to um, Javier Cercas, I mean, you quote in the in the book, for example, that Vargas Llosa saying Soldados de Salamina reinvented engaged, reinvented engaged literature for the 21st century. But it's, it is an engaged literature, I guess, you know, that's obviously a term, I guess it, it comes from Sartre or whatever, but, you know, when you think of sort of mid-century engaged literature, around, you know, around the Civil War, you would have, it's 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 engaged in terms of commitment to a project. Whereas with with Tercas, I mean, it's, he, he says, I think in the Anatomy of a Moment, look, he talks about the coup, the coup in which the form is the content. And in a sense, he he is someone whose whose work if if he's committed to something it's it's sort of a commitment to I don't know constitutional ideals or whatever you know but in a very specific sense of a defense of the transition and a defense and it's it's a defense it's it's probably the most it's a very interesting and sophisticated defense but to what extent is he the novelist of I don't want to say the novelist of the regime but the novelist of defending one of the hegemonic ideas of, of Spain in the last 30 years in terms of El País, the transition, this is this this is a sort of untouchable, I don't know if it's an untouchable dogma, but an untouchable, you know, that any questioning of this can lead to sort of dangers going towards the past, etc. Well, that, so Thetikas is such a curious case because I think yeah. he is almost, he, he has waffled back and forth um, about what he want, what of the transition to democracy does he want to defend, right? Okay. I mean, so 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 Salamina, right? I mean, it's it's a complicated book because, right? It tells a very, let's say, uh, uh, forgiving history about a well-known fascist ideologue, and many people have read that forgiving history as the only, or let's say, the mechanism that Cercas uses in order to rehabilitate this, let's say, unknown history, or at least the idea of the unknown silent history of the man who saved this guy, right, who is the Republican, yeah. anonymous Republican um, uh, soldier, right? And so I think that, but in the second book, right, is, or sorry, second book, his second work, of, second major work of, of autofiction, I think that what he transitions to, this also happens in Soldados de Salamina, I think what he's interested in is not, let's say, the. ultimately, you're right. He's interested in defending, right, some kind of idealized version of the transition to democracy. But what's curious to me about Cercas is that that idealized version is a, let's say, is, is not the idealized version that uh, other people defend of the transition to democracy, mm. right? So for, so for example, just going to Anatomia de un Instante, right? One, one of the interesting things about Anatomia de un Instante is that he takes to task the Spanish populace, right? The Spanish citizenry for yeah. memorializing the yeah, it's quite interesting. 1981 coup, right? Incorrectly, right? He says the populace of Spain, they weren't, they were just sitting on their bums. They weren't, they don't, they weren't actually present 
uh, at the coup, at the moment of the coup, right, on the 23rd of February in 1981, in the way that they have all memorialized it. And even in the way that... It's it's not... There's a nice nice line in there where he talks about how how people remember watching it on TV, but... But it wasn't sh- it wasn't shown live, so that their actual memories of the day of the coup have been edited afterwards. But they're you know they people talk about they really even even when they're told this they really believe no I watched I watched this coup play out live on TV. Exactly, and so he and so again, abs that's spot on. He wants to he wants he wants to let's say give a let's say a different I would say a different idealized version. Yeah. And that different idealized version is very, let's say, it's very entertaining and it's very appetizable, right? It's very, it's very enjoyable yeah. um, on behalf of the Spanish public because it's counterintuitive, and it, because yeah. it seems counterintuitive, because it's revisionist in a way yeah. that seems like it's going against the grain. But as you point out, at the end of the day, he's right. Really I think that's, I mean, that is, that's why that's what that is what's interesting. Yeah, I met him as a writer, I guess, in that sense. And, you know, you describe him as a big enfant terrible fan of, of uh, you know, the Spanish literary world. And his persona is as, you know, sort of a jaded, you know, jaded hack. And then he goes in, you know, he, he enjoys sort of unpacking all the sort of contradictions, all the sort of nuances, et cetera. So it's not, I mean, it's it's at the one at the same time giving us the dominant narrative, but at the same time, a much more sophisticated version. I mean, for example... The column he wrote in El País when the when the Juan Carlos abdicated, no, I mean, was the the monarchy brought us democracy was the title or something like that. So it was a very you know sort of dogmatic title, and then he sort of refines that argument and sort of shows the you know the limits, the contradictions, but never quite never quite renounces it at the same time. We it still ends up by defending constitutional monarchy. Well, and so I think that's why he's uh, let's say so frustrating politically for people on the left. Because yeah. he expresses many of the ideas that people on the left think, let's say, but he couches them, but he, but he ultimately, or he, let's say, he's much better than Adamburu yeah. at actually understanding what the left thinks, right? Perhaps because he sometimes think, I think he thinks he's much further to the left than he actually is. That's number one. But number two, I think he actually understands like what people think and how people experience things uh, from a left-wing perspective, and because of that, he's able to say, "Look, I understand what you're saying. I understand this narrative that you're giving of the transition to democracy, but I'm still going to go in this other route. I'm still going to go in the, let's say, uh, Im- unimpeachable uh, nature of the Spanish transition to democracy. I'm still going to go in the route of saying we need statesmen, we need people who had this kind of political authority at this particular moment to assert that authority. We're, we still have this kind of Let's say we can't we can't undo the transition. We can't go back to uh, the state where where the the Partido Comunista was was eliminated from the debates and just kind of forge ahead by eliminating the Francoists as well. No, we couldn't have. Done. And so he understands the let's say left wing perspectives, but at the same time, um, let's say dismisses them in a way that uh, let's say it it just it, it it he dismisses them always at the end, right? He doesn't yeah. begin with a frontal attack, and he dismisses them by through understanding, and by saying, "I'm just going to opt for a different answer to this question." Um, and so I think that that's why he is. I mean, I called him the infant terrible, obviously from a from a kind of uh, left wing perspe- perspective, 
Um, but I think people on the right would also see the same thing because he's not also he's he doesn't really defend the right either. He defends a very kind of centrist, um, yeah, or centrist or center left Pessoa establishment take on the transition to democracy, on the Spanish Civil War, right? Which again, it's not a right wing perspective, but it's certainly a very kind of establishment perspective, but through non-establishment means, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Where someone like Javier Cerca, Javier Marias is much more, at least previously, was much more upfront with his political positions in his writing, right? And especially in his op-ed writing. He, right, yeah. was the son of an internal exile. He has lots of problems with the with how the whole, uh, uh, let's say, the transition democracy was negotiated, right? And he's very upfront with that, even though I think at the end of the day, he also arrives at similar positions on the trans transition to democracy uh, as Thetikas, he does throw again through a different different means. Yeah, I mean, I want I wanted to go on to Marias uh, because I think in some ways, particularly someone who yeah would would know much about the Spanish media scene, would be surprised to think of someone like Marias as a, as a public intellectual or you know as a as a columnist in that sense because you know when you think of his novels, particularly the way the, the way they're read outside of Spain, is he's a novelist of. of Distanciation of paradox of irony of you know uh, philosophical thoughtful novels. I mean, they're not. He's not. You wouldn't describe him as an engaged intellectual in that sense, or that's that's not his that's not his image. That's not the image he himself cultivated necessarily. But he also then, yeah, as you said, had a weekly column in El País. When I arrived in in, in Madrid, in, I guess it was two thousand like two thousand fifteen, and I remember reading some of his columns and being slightly surprised. You know, having read his novels previously. By by the tone, by this you know the sort of very belligerent tone of some of some of the columns, etc. I mean, prior to reading your book, I, I nearly saw them as, as as very separate things. You know, the novelist and in the sort of for me slightly bizarre cantankerous columns in which he did himself no fit, or at least I, I I was reading the sort of the latter the latter years of his of his columns. So talk talk about how how he fits in here. I mean, in terms of of, of being an op-ed novelist or and producing op-ed novels because I, I i don't think many people would 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 describe his novels as as you know yeah as either a sort of lit, you know some sort of journalistic novel or yeah so so marias fits in in because i take a let's say a a more general view of what an op-ed novel is i'm not very kind of um i don't i don't want to like let's say set in stone what are the characteristics of an op-ed novel i think op-ed novels are, are novels essentially that, I, this is what I spell out in the book, I, I say op-ed novels are novels that attempt to intervene directly in the most important debates, political debates of, of their time. In that, right? in, that, in, that, I mean, in, that, in that sense, are we told, because yeah, I mean, the difference, one between op-ed novelist and op-ed novel, yeah. and then between the sort of ideal type of an op-ed novel, I mean, are there so people like Almuden and Brandes, Serkas seem to fit, more, you know, are, would their works be more, you know, more op-ed novelish, uh, as opposed to as opposed to Serkas? I mean, or as opposed to Maria? Maybe there is. I mean, so, some of the things you you note about the fact that he did expect uh, real-world consequences from his novels around, I mean, denouncing people, denouncing Francoist intellectuals in his novels. I mean, it's yeah, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, I I would say that it's it's easier to see how. Cercas and, and Almudena Grandes and even someone like Munoz Molina are using their novels for political 
ends than someone like Marias, I would say it's easier to see that. I don't think that it's categorically distinct, though. Just the genres that they use are, are very different. It's, 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 I guess maybe in Marias it might seem more secondary. It's not like, it doesn't exactly. seem as central. Oh, like, you know, it's, the, the, he yeah. has these passages maybe which which are political and intense, but whether the, 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 the wider novel or not is, I'm not sure. Exactly. And so I think that the the way that you can see the op-ed style of Marias comes through in his novels is, again, through through very specific moments in his novels and so, very specific moments combined with their kind of more general theme, right? So you have a, a novel like, uh, well, Tu Rostro Mañana, right, which is the, the series that you mentioned, right? So these are his three, basically three novels, but construed as a as a kind of magnum opus across i don't know 15 no 1500 more pages an enormous novel um published between 2000, 2002 and 2007 and in that novel that novel is very again it's extremely literary it's very philosophical right you have your standard marias where he takes his characters and has these like i don't know 50 page long philosophical digressions um, in this novel, what's curious, and I think what was what really shocked many Marias readers up until that point, is that these philosophical digressions turned into historical digressions. Right in the first part, in the first uh, uh, um, volume of of the novel, published in two thousand two, you have the narrator talking about Spanish history and talking about the Spanish Civil War. He goes to the library of of an Oxford don um, where he used to work, and that that library has just tomes and tomes from the Spanish Civil War, and he reads about he reads about Andre Unin, and he reads about the Pum, and he reads about like especially I mean essentially left wing uh, Civil War history, um, and he recounts that in in the novel, and so I think that that kind of really shocked many Marias readers at the moment, and then later in that novel, he as you mentioned he uh, uses his father figure. Uh, who is a very similar resemblance to Marias's own father, Julian Marias, the the philosopher, um, and he uses his father figure as a way to, uh, or he kind of uses him as a mouthpiece to denounce actual Francoists who had uh, denounced his own father, Julian Marias, in real life back in 1939, uh, I believe, uh, for being a writer, being a spy for Pravda, right, for the communists in 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 Russia. And so he denounces them for the first time in the pages of of this novel. And so I think that in that sense, that that link is very kind of, I don't know, for lack of a better term, genetic, right? It's literally there, right? The DNA of announcing, uh, of denouncing these people and revealing their names where you had spent the past 30, 40 years of your life and you and your father had spent the past 30, 40 years of your lives not saying who these people were, despite people asking time and again. Uh, using the novel for that purpose, I think, creates a very kind of genetic link between the op-ed column where you denounce people, yeah. you make arg- political arguments in the public sphere, and a novel, and brings that, let's say, ha- as a as a let's say momentary bit of uh, op-edness in a an entire novel that is by and large couched in very literary and high philosophical uh, language, and so in that sense. Let's say there are these moments that determine the op-ed, but if you step take a step back and you consider the project of what is Tu Rostro Mañana as a novel, well, it's a novel about violence in the Spanish Civil War, right? 
told through, let's say, a contemporary lens, told through a number of different perspectives of, let's say, a father, of a son, of, uh, let's say, a romantic uh, relationship that has gone awry that one feels the need to kind of set, set the record straight on, right? Through a bunch of kind of interpersonal dynamics. But at the end of the day, it's a novel about, again, I would say about violence and Spanish history and ultimately about the Spanish Civil War. And so it doesn't seem... I guess when you when you take a very kind of microscopic view and then a huge macro macroscopic view and combine them, it doesn't seem so out of step as one would one would feel kind of just reading the novel in in general. And so it's not at the end of the day a huge surprise that he would use his novel uh, in order to do that. In fact, as I mentioned before, right? What is what is one of the most important features of a novel that an op-ed doesn't have? Right, shelf life. Right. If you're going to denounce someone. I mean, what is the, be- the what better place to do it than in a novel where people are going to read it generations and generations later? So Marias does actually use those real the real names of these three Francoists in in the novel themselves. He outs them in the novel as though they were fictional characters who had a relationship with the father of the man who t- of the narrator in 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 the novel, right? And not his actual father, but clearly the I mean. Anyone who who just, I mean, even in 2002 when the book was published, you look up their names. I mean, you you can search for their names and search uh, and figure out quickly who these people, or relatively quickly who these people were. These people were not famous. They were not, uh, let's say, well-known outside of academia. Uh, but a couple of them were famous, were, were sorry, were well-known professors. Uh, one, who I think, was in the Real Academia. I think of... Uh, and I don't know if uh, anthropologia or something like that, but anyways, these were well-known academic figures who were the people who denounced uh, denounced his father. And obviously, we've said that these are this is a generation of novelists, etc. Came, came of age in the nineties. What you you suggest in a sense, their shelf life has has somewhat you know they've they've lived past maybe their their usefulness as public intellectuals. That the quality, particularly of their opinion, maybe not so much their novels, but their opinion work, their inter, their sort of more immediate interventions, have in recent years diminished. I've seen Marius died what a year ago or something now, but you know his the, the last years of his opinion writing, you know some of the stuff he wrote about feminism, a lot of their reactions to Catalan the independence movement or the Indignados, the Quinceañera movement, etc., was really one-dimensional, you know, to be, and that's, that's being polite. They, they came of age in the moments of third way genemy, Sarkas, his idea, the, the hero of retreat, sort of this moment, you know, which ideology is sort of left aside. And then you have this sort of, this new wave of, of political conflicts, etc., around by anti-austerity, feminism, national autonomy of Catalonia, etc., on, on the Basque country. At, at a certain stage, their usefulness or their sort of the, the initial vigor and life of of their critique, critiques of Spanish society sort of lo- lose their relevancy, and mostly you have that sort of that sort of intellectual boomerism then of the of the last number of years. Yeah, and I think that I think that you're absolutely right. I think that lots of these novelists, I mean, obviously, Agrandes and Javier Marías passed away, um, but many of these novelists have have in a sense uh, held on to uh, let's say their perches atop the. Spanish literary intellectual landscape um, a bit a bit long, um, and I think that th- that that teaches us a number of a number of things that, uh, about them, which is that 
I think that we can often, by reading or by reading their columns and reading their their works right now, we can often kind of miss the forest for the trees in a sense, right? We we can forget that Marias, uh, for example, uh, despite his again, I think you're right. Basically, from about I would say from around 2006, 2007 onwards, he became the cantankerous um, uh, uh, guy, kind of I don't know, speaking from his his pulpit at at, at El Bais. Uh, denouncing all the I don't know the the new waves of both political um, political reform and political movements and denouncing all these newfangled things as as not being in keeping with with let's say the Spanish Constitution or Spanish uh, let's say nationalism or I don't know what have you I think that they teach us that that these people were not always uh, this way and I. Th- think that there's something to be able that's there's something to recover from let's say an earlier Marias maybe not his I would say for me Marias is even for his, even in his his best of days was always a very kind of uh, a bit too moralistic for my taking right um, but at the same time he at least used his column in a way that uh, few few op-ed writers do today right he used his, his column as a way to uh, to make political denunciations now, one can quibble with those denunciations, and I do so in the book. I don't think that his arguments are at, when he denounces someone like uh, Aranguren or when he denounces someone like Eduardo Aroteclin, a journalist um, from, from let's say, the, the uh, 80s and 90s uh, for El País. When he denounces these people, he doesn't always provide the strongest arguments. But he does provide some claims that at least make one, let's say, reconsider Right. One what one previously thought about the generation of intellectuals that existed under Franco and then subsequently uh, claimed to have been on the right side of history all along. And I think that those are important questions. Again, the style may not be the style, but I think the point or may, may not be one's cup of tea. But I think that the point is that they were using op-eds uh, at their best points. They were using their op- op-eds in order to kind of spark uh, new ways of, of of thinking and confronting society that, as you, as as I'm sure you know, Owen, as someone who reads the Spanish press constantly, right, the vast majority of op-eds are just kind of dry, not interesting. They don't provoke your thinking. They don't make you, they don't challenge your previous assumptions. Um, and I think that these novelists in the best of times did with their op-eds. I think they really kind of uh, they pushed op-eds as a form in Spain to uh, to be able to to challenge uh, assumptions, whether assumptions about, as in the case with Antonio Munoz Molina, assumption, cultural assumptions about what was allowed to, what what kind of references what one could make, what did the Spanish public understand, what did it not understand. He clearly thought that the Spanish public understood much more than the Francoists and then the people who ushered in the transition uh, would allow. Or someone like Marias, who was very kind of who used the column to kind of make kind of political denunciations uh, about the past. But each of them kind of pushed op-eds into, um, I think, creating new audiences and creating new, uh, uh, triggering new forms of, of 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 understanding of the past that that were very useful uh, in their day. But as you mentioned, I mean, even even someone like Almudena Grandes, I mean, Almudena Grandes toward the end of her life was also, she was cantankerous in a different way, I would say. Yeah. But she also, her op-eds were also not terribly, 
uh, let's say, challenging, right? This was not, they were, they were not provoking new forms of thought. They were, let's say, using left-wing sloganeering in a way that I think was unproductive and unhelpful, um, in a way that her earlier columns back in 2007, when she was given, finally given that platform on the El País, on the main El País op-ed page, she actually used those those comms to really like attack, <laughs> uh, attack, uh, uh, let's say, shibboleths of Spanish society like the Catholic Church, uh, in ways that I think were uh, later got muted. One would say, but in each of these cases, I think they pushed op-eds to become something different. But again, just like every generation, kind of, I need, I think, needs to, uh, uh, needs to reestablish itself and kind of discover new ways of pushing the boundaries of both op-ed writing and fiction writing. And curiously, I think that one could say the same about their fiction writing, right? Uh, Javier Marias's most recent novels are good and very, very good novels, but they're sh they certainly were not pushing the boundaries in the way that something like Tu, tu Rostro Mañana uh, was pushing the boundaries of, of the novel form, right? And I guess, I mean, uh, along the same lines, I mean, obviously El Pais is still the dominant paper on the center left in, in in Spain, but maybe it's its position as you know, there is there is a greater plurality in the Spanish media scape, mainly from online uh, outlets, but you know, we you have El Diario, you have other you know, um outlets as well. And I think in that sense there's much much more interesting col columnists writing elsewhere than than maybe in El País. You know, you're not going there for cutting edge, you know, commentary on Spanish Spanish society necessarily. Absolutely. And you have you have novelists who are writing or novelists or literary intellectuals in general who are writing yeah. op-eds in these other places. Right. Isaac Rosa. Yeah. Right. Reds, yeah. Writes a column in El Diario. Right. You have um, Luis Garcia Montero. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. House of Almudena Grandes yeah. writing an Info Libre. You have lots of writers writing for these new outlets. And I think that 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 these outlets, uh, what's interesting about about um thinking about, let's say, literary intellectuals and these new outlets is what are they going to do with that column space? Are they going to push the boundaries in the ways that Javier Marias and Munoz Molina did in the 80s and 90s? Are they going to push the, the op-ed as a form? Or is it going to be kind of a, or is they going to just inherit that form and still work within the, the constraints and the boundaries of short form opinion writing? And I think that that's something that would be that's interesting to 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 look into. I, I should also mention that there one of the curious things, and this is, let's say, one of the things that that kind of uh, tormented me while writing this book is that one could write the exact opposite of this book, which is this, which is that one can write an entire, let's say, work uh, analyzing contemporary Spanish fiction and analyzing contemporary Spanish fiction writers as intellectuals who in fact don't have op-ed columns or never had op-ed columns. So I'm thinking of like someone like Belén Gopegui, right? Yes. Who is a, let's say, very well-known left-wing uh, writer who uses her novels, let's say, as, I don't know if as op-eds, but certainly as a form of opinion writing. But she never wrote an opinion column and never wanted to write an opinion column, right? Another person that I that comes to mind is someone like Rafael Chirabes, yeah, right? Yeah, or whose novels are extremely political, are extremely, let's say, sensitive to the political milieu of the moment, but yet he never 
never wanted to write an opinion column, never wrote an opinion column, never had any interest in becoming that kind of intellectual. And so in a sense, there's a kind of an inverse to this where you have people who become very, let's say, I would call both of them intellectuals, literary intellectuals, but purely through their novels in a way that I think is is also interesting. But of course, as we both know, did not have the same, let's say, uh, media prominence, did not have the same, let's say, spectacular influence that maybe these these uh, opinion columnists did. And, it, and have you, I mean, have you had any interactions with these writers? Have you met them? Have you interviewed them? Do they know that this book's going out there? I mean, what, what, what is your relationship with, the, with these writers? That's a great question. No, I, I don't know any of these writers. Okay. Um, and I, I think I would, I mean, I don't know. I, perhaps it's best that I I, I, I don't yeah <laughs> and any of these writers I would not have been able to write to write this book but certainly I, I mean I I'm uh, I know lots of people who know these writers I know uh, I know writers themselves who have read this book and have been interested in this book uh, for very different reasons I don't know if they see if if uh, so I, I have a couple of uh, friends who are novelists who've 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 read the book and I don't know if they see themselves in the book. I think that they just kind of say, oh, but these are those writers, right? These are writers that are doing something very different from from the novelistic work that that I'm doing. And I think that that writers in general can kind of separate themselves out or can kind of separate the work from their persona um, in a way in a way that's that's perhaps that's certainly useful for novel writing. But um, but yeah, no, I haven't had any. But I think it will be the look. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Definitely. When the book is published in Spanish, I'm sure exactly. get... that'll be the that'll be the interesting moment. So that, yeah, like the the review in out by you so such. That'll be oh, interesting one. Yeah. Uh, well, look, uh, Becca, this has been a really interesting conversation. We're going to have to have you on again to talk. I I I mean I I'm a I'm a fan of your own journalistic work, so we'll we'll have to get you on to talk maybe about some of the the current affairs issues you're covering for the nation. Absolutely, anytime. Great. Thanks a lot. Thank you.